Welcome back to This Clerkship Life. This week we're joined by fellow Queens Med students, Louis Forward and Stephanie Jang, to discuss compassion and medicine. We have a great conversation ranging from burnout and power dynamics in medicine to knowledge translation and the recent hospital protests. I wanted to share an ancient indigenous story regarding compassion. A wise elder was teaching his grandson about life. He describes a fight going on inside of him. He describes this fight as a terrible fight between two wolves. One wolf is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other wolf is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside of you, inside every other person as well. The grandson thought for a minute and then asked, which wolf will win? The wise old elder replied, the one that we feed. Each day when we get up, we should be asking ourselves, which wolf are we going to feed today? Yeah, I'm not sure we want to start. <laughs> yeah, I feel like... Um... Well, it's it's very nice to have you here. First of all, oh, it's nice to it's nice to have a you know a different <laughs> face and um, yeah. instead of know. just always seeing Andrew. Yeah. And Andrew is is Correct. and he's an extremely handsome man. And I appreciate <laughs> Thank him. You. Thank you. I appreciate you a lot. You know, but it's uh, it's nice to have another face. Yeah. But yeah. I, th- I think it's one of those topics where you know that it's intrinsically a part of what medicine is. Mm-hmm. You know that you're. It's a tenet of what being a, a, a good doctor is, is, mm-hmm. is being compassionate and being present with other people and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, allowing, you know, setting the environment for someone to be comfortable um, and for it not to just be about the diagnostics or about the uh, fancy mm-hmm. procedures and, and or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also got so many layers to it as well i completely agree i think um and one of the things i wanted to talk about was specifically the compassion crisis that we're facing um and this was back a few months well almost a year ago when i was listening to a podcast a podcast episode by free economics and essentially they were discussing how um doctors are as we know extremely burnt out about a third of physicians are burnt out um, or have depression in Canada as of 2018 and especially for residents there's a significantly higher number um, who report burnout depression and even lifetime suicidal ideation Um, so those burnout rates are between 40 to 54 percent so yeah it's it's like it's, it's hard to ignore numbers like that, but then you also wonder a little bit about how much medicine has changed over the years to yeah. try and solve that. Yeah. It's very interesting because I've had these conversations with people outside of medicine in the past. And I think when, when we're in medicine, we're like, a lot of us are so burnt out and there's mm-hmm. so much compassion fatigue and all of these things. But also medicine is one of those careers where... I think a lot of people find meaning in helping other people and there's like an intrinsic, I don't know, sort of reward from helping other people. Mm -hmm. Whereas other individuals that might be working in the service industry or working like pure labor jobs, Mm -hmm. their jobs also really suck. 
Right? Yeah, 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 I think so, working sucks. Yeah, working in general sucks. So <laughs> when we think outside of just like our little bubble, it helps frame how we feel sometimes, I think. I think we need a sort of an outside perspective. That's not to diminish like mm-hmm, all of sure. the compassion fatigue that physicians experience because mm-hmm. there's so many like systemic things that are wrong and then you just like become so frustrated you're like i'm here to help people but like the system is not just not letting me do that yeah like when we book three patients in a clinic at it's... the same time slot for 10 minutes like a 10 exactly. minute time slot yeah. yeah and then we're like an hour and a half behind and other mm-hmm. patients get mad it's like there's a s- systemic issue there mm-hmm. and then people get mad at us and we're like we're just trying to help you and it's just this crazy cycle oh absolutely i think um we always talk about the healthcare system being overburdened and uh, doctors being burnt out from that, you know, like, like you said, having these patients all at once, all of the paperwork, administrative tasks. In fact, we introduced the EMR and we think that it will make work easier because technology makes life easier. But mm-hmm. in fact, it's um, getting much more difficult, to be honest, because you're stuck doing a bunch of things that are completely unnecessary um and uh, there's a lot a lot more extra steps to get one thing done that you could have just checked off with a pen but now you have to fill it all in on a computer mm-hmm. um yeah so it's just there are definitely like you mentioned just working in general sucks for sure um but i do think that it's important to keep compassion in healthcare not just because obviously we're treating people Mm -hmm. but also the fact that compassionate care actually improves patient outcomes and it saves money in healthcare and we're not saying that clinical acumen is not important that is obviously the number one most important thing like clinical excellence in treating patients and making sure that they get the treatment they need Mm -hmm. but um they have found that when there is compassionate care you lower the use of unnecessary diagnostic tests, you get fewer referrals to specialists, you get fewer unnecessary hospitalizations and even lower total healthcare charges. Mm -hmm. And I think like one of the statistics that actually I thought was really intriguing um, is that the longest, well, at least in the States, um, they find that patients can speak for 11 seconds before their physician cuts them off. Mm-hmm. And I think that, <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah. You can't explain your entire problem in 11 seconds. And I think that, ties back into having three patients at once booked for 10 minutes each Mm -hmm. giving them 11 seconds is even too much you know and something like that so and like so often that 10 minutes also includes your time for like dictating the Mm -hmm. entire Mm -hmm. encounter and all of those things Mm -hmm. so really it's like five minutes with the patient five minutes to dictate and finish all of the paperwork Mm -hmm. necessary to move on to the next one Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and you're you're treating human beings but it's hard not to turn it into productivity and output and mm-hmm. outcome very quickly because it's like, well, I'm stuck. I got to finish X amount of patients mm-hmm. or I'm literally not mm-hmm. doing my job properly. Mm-hmm. And um, that can be really tough. For sure. And um, I feel like I might be going off a little bit on a tangent here, but relating to that is realizing how powerful the medical record can be, especially in changing even patients management, mm-hmm. a lot of times it comes with like mental health uh, diagnoses. Um, for example, 
a lot of times if people have been diagnosed with, let's say, borderline personality disorder mm-hmm. and you see, and physicians see that in the chart, they undermine this patient's experience of pain or suffering. And often um, they'll jump to conclusions of, oh, they're just faking it, you know? And yeah. it's like, I think like people should realize the importance of if you're giving a diagnosis, if you're adding something to the medical record, recognizing the impact this will have on this patient's care in the future mm-hmm. as well. And being... And once you actually do become a physician, always keeping in mind that you have your own biases, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's sometimes you just jump straight to, oh, I really don't think someone's pain can be that bad or they must Mm -hmm. be exaggerating this and this or something like that. Um, And just checking yourself as well. So, Yeah. yeah. I feel like as someone who's like sort of interested in psychiatry and things like that, whenever I Mm -hmm. see a patient with a mental illness, diagnoses like during my emerge rotation or something i almost pay extra care Mm -hmm, i almost went too mm -hmm. far the other way and just like okay i want to make sure that i'm not missing anything that's like sure physical yeah you know Mm -hmm. i i definitely think um and this has actually so so this almost loops back to one of the things i wanted to talk about is there's a um an article i'm gonna find the name of it it's called arrogance and uh it's um published in Najam uh, in the 1980s and essentially one of the quotes is that um they wonder if one of the precursors to actually entering medicine is that you must have a chronic illness so that you've experienced the healthcare system so you've experienced being a patient so you understand the frustrations the pain the fear of what it is, what what it means to be sick, and um, the writer asks the audience in this uh, essay, "What sort of doctors do you think we'd produce if we did that?" Mm-hmm. That's an interesting paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I can speak on this a little bit because uh, in second year, I had some health concerns. You know, mm-hmm. I I, um, I I found out that I had a stricture in my esophagus and a my life went from work hard and get the next, I want to do research and this mm-hmm, and whatever mm-hmm. makes my CV looks mm-hmm. fancy to holy crap. Like mm-hmm. I can't eat properly or mm-hmm. I potentially could choke and maybe die or maybe yeah. aspirate or whatever. And I remember, um, being so scared to reach out, knowing this was an issue for a mm-hmm. little bit, being scared to reach out. And then when I actually did being so overwhelmed as a patient, you mm-hmm. know, having the, the, context of what people are probably saying in my mm-hmm. head but then also just it, it's a blur it's a blur and, and you, you hear so many yeah. things and before you know it you're getting an IV and you're they're doing mm-hmm. a procedure and your life is a little different and suddenly you're taking medications and even with a, a solid medical background all the moments that really stuck with me were the moments where the the nurse comforted me for example or where where um one of the one of the uh, GI physicians uh, reassured me that this is a you know about the condition and what um what my outcomes might be and mm-hmm. uh, just short, taking a moment that was outside of the the rush of the ER and the mm-hmm. and, you know the um the consult and all that stuff mm-hmm. um and I had to go through a bunch of treatments afterwards and it just changes the way you think about things like you you really, we try to put ourselves in, in our patient's shoes. And of course, like that's what you, the mentality that 
you should kind of uh, approach it with. But mm -hmm. wow, when you're actually a patient, it really, it just, it hits you like a rock. It's just mm -hmm. suddenly like, oh my, oh my goodness, like this, my world could be cha changing yeah. here, you know? For sure. I still remember a lot of times when I see patients on the wards, often they will ask me what is happening. Mm -hmm. And I'm shocked that no one's told them. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, in fact, I remember very distinctly there was this man with end-stage pancreatic cancer and he thought he was there for a hernia. And it was the biggest miscommunication and mm -hmm. I'm like, no one's given him a diagnosis. He genuinely has no idea why he's here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being a patient is terrifying and I think it's the uncertainty as well. And when you don't have a physician who listens to you who cuts you off at 11 seconds mm -hmm. especially if you're already in a very vulnerable position to start with and you're entering um the appointment worried scared like not and yeah. and this is even from the fact that we're medical students we have a certain level of health literacy mm -hmm. you know like we yeah. go in and we have expectations for what tests more or less could be ordered mm -hmm. um and you have an understanding of what symptoms are benign and what are can actually be problematic right so but then you have the regular joe who's just at home who's n maybe like never been educated on this and then they come in and and they're not able to tell their whole story mm -hmm. or it's also very easy to lead them down the garden path right you would suggest anything they would just say yes mm -hmm. um so i think even as med students experiencing the healthcare system the way that it is um we, we are still, in a way, able to stand up for ourselves. And I think that's why it's so important for us to advocate on behalf of patients because so many of them can slip through the cracks. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times, like I've realized, at least a lot of patients don't speak up for themselves or they feel that if they were to say anything, they would just get bulldozed over anyways. So there's, yeah, a lot of work with that. Um, yeah. Yeah, sometimes mm -hmm. it might be even intimidating for the patient to say anything mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. maybe not even from an intellectual point of view but like from a I don't want to know what potentially this person is going to tell me you know mm -hmm. I, I may not want to find out about yeah, this for and, sure. and it's it's hard to get to that level of openness especially um which is what I think you need some yeah. openness and some spaciousness in that relationship mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. it's hard for that to exist in some of the paradigms Mm -hmm. of our healthcare system yeah. right like the one you described earlier where it's like 10 minutes and you're doing this and doing that it's, yeah it's it's hard to recruit that mm -hmm. um for every interaction and you could see how that ties into to burning out over over many years of not only that but uh you know maintaining your life outside of medicine and, oh, and, and for sure. all the things that go into being a, a person yeah yeah i think and that actually um, is something I wanted to talk about as well, about the idea of being a whole human being, the multidimensional aspect of being a medical student. Because I think that um, for a lot of people, especially physicians, uh, let's say like, I'm going to talk about surgery specifically, just because I'm interested in it. And I did some research looking at identity in surgeons, but they define them, most of them do define themselves by the fact that they are a blank surgeon you know like they're an orthopedic surgeon they're a plastic surgeon whatever um and this was a lot more prevalent back in the day you know when the demands of work and wellness was not exactly aligned so um 
And you look at a lot of, there have been several papers actually that have come out looking at aging and identity in the retiring surgeon. Mm -hmm. And they look at um, what's called identity threats, which are essentially exactly what it sounds like, threats to your identity, things that don't, that will change who you define yourself as. And each one of us, we have an identity framework and we have different identities, like occupational identities, um, which is your job identity. Uh, But obviously it's it, this is psychology so they're going to make some big words with it yeah. um but mm-hmm. they're looking at surgeons who are nearing the end of their career mm-hmm. and i just remember they interviewed um a good amount at uft and there was a big consensus amongst these surgeons who are of the i'd say like two generations before us probably okay. um who were absolutely terrified of retiring for no other reason than they had genuinely did not know who they were Mm -hmm. if they were not a surgeon and it was I thought it was sort of ironic because I actually ended up doing this research in the first summer of first year med looking at a job that I wanted to pursue Mm -hmm. seeing the people who had gone through made it to the end be terrified of leaving said job Mm -hmm. um I remember this one quote specifically was don't throw me out like an old worn shoe from one of the surgeons because once you do reach a certain age and I think that is the difference between internists and surgeons surgeons become physically um like less prime like less robust you know like Mm -hmm. they've shown there are like you get tremors you your eyesight gets poor at a after a certain age sometimes there's cognitive changes and it affects your decision making so unfortunately there isn't a I don't want to say expiry date but there is an end date you know like Mm -hmm. Um, where it becomes unsafe exactly genuinely you are hurting your patient like I remember my dermatologist in Toronto was 88 years old oh my god and he was still practicing and he was he was still like a very cognitively there yeah but his work had no physical demands he was always in a chair but um, essentially with these retiring surgeons they had lost their sense of identity because for these 50 years, Mm -hmm. they didn't have the time to cultivate anything else. And um, in fact, there were one of the biggest issues with this is actually like economic because you have surgeons who are terrified of retiring hospitals who want to push the surgeons out um, hospitals who don't provide any sort of retirement planning for surgeons either, Mm -hmm. but not even surgeons like physicians in general. general, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's nothing you're you're just goodbye so um now you have these very very driven people who have defined themselves by their career who work in an institution who are essentially like we don't need you anymore so in fact there were a few surgeons um who are interviewed in this might have been a separate study but they ended up dying essentially at their desk like they died randomly um still in the middle of their well, not middle of their career, middle of the day, near the end of their career sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then there are thousands and thousands of patients just get lost to limbo. Because now, you know, you had five, let's say surgeons, now you only have four, you have to split them, but no one knows how to split them because you know, the said person who unfortunately passed away never had, not never had, was scared of considering retirement. So he never actually like came up with a contingency plan <laughs> should he retire. And then all of that extra load of work just gets split across the um, leftover surgeons who have their own clinics and their own patient population. But if we had, or if hospitals and system, um, system, systemically, systemically had a, a, had a process for retirement, 
you know, over maybe, hey, you're reaching your 70s now. Maybe you can think about it over the next two, three years. We'll mm-hmm. help yeah. you organize and, like, something. Exactly. Transi- yeah, exactly. Transition. Like yeah. Um, but I think like it was just it was really sad for me at least to be seeing this this point of you couldn't be a different person. You know, you this was the one identity they did have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for a lot of us that are in medicine, either academics was a big part of our life prior. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of translates to career being a big part of us in terms of our identity, mm-hmm. which whether that's a good or bad thing, I, like, I don't know. Like, I don't think personally your career should be your entire identity. Mm-hmm. I think I would want to be defined as someone who's like just mm-hmm. a good friend or like a good family member mm-hmm. or being known as an amazing doctor or whatever. Like, because there is there is a timeline to your career, right? There's a timeline to life. Yeah. You, you, so, it's finite. Like, I don't know. It's really mm-hmm. tough. I'm glad that there are people out there that want to do surgery because we need surgeons. But I think we also accept the culture in surgery where it's extremely demanding. It requires a ton of self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then some people look back on their careers sometimes and are a little bitter about it, I feel. Oh, yeah. no, like, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to pull up. There was another study, actually, in Nedjum, um on the burnout the residents faced, especially with discrimination and racism. Um, mm. Yes, it's discrimination, abuse, harassment, and burnout in surgical residency training. And this was published in 2019. So uh, they essentially looked at 7,409 residents, and they were from 262 different surgical residency programs. And a third of them reported discrimination based on their self-identified gender, um, 16.6% reported racial discrimination. Another third reported verbal or physical abuse or both. And 10% have reported sexual harassment. Um, and mistreatment measures were higher among women. Um, and in fact, 65% of the women have reported gender discrimination. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a reflection of a very poor culture. And I find it a little ironic because... Yeah. You select for, or supposedly select for, the most compassionate, empathetic individuals. Mm-hmm. And so you wonder, you, you, you get the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed med students starting in, start, like starting first year, and then they get beaten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like they're, yeah. the, the positivity mm-hmm. gets beaten out of them by the, <laughs> yeah. by the time they exit. So, yeah. I yeah. It's, it's really interesting because I'm on surgery right now, mm-hmm. and... I think for a lot of people that aren't interested in surgery, it's a very intimidating. Oh, for sure. For sure. Even going into it, I was like, I just, I'm just trying Mm -hmm. to survive the next six weeks and finish my core rotation Mm -hmm. so I can do my electives. Although I actually really enjoy being in the OR. I love using my hands and being able Mm -hmm. to suture and all of that. It's just, I found that when I was on my rotation, I was extremely tired. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes I didn't feel helpful. I was like standing in the corner of Mm -hmm. the room or like scribbling down what the resident mm-hmm. was saying during rounds. And then if people were mean to me on top of that, that that was just the last like little thing that the pushed me. The cherry over. on top. I know. It's like I'm tired. <laughs> I'm not helpful. Yeah. And people are being mean to me when mm-hmm. I'm not really doing anything. Like that's just you know. I yeah, I definitely mm-hmm. understand. I think as someone who is interested in surgery, I've been able to sort of look past that myself. Mm-hmm. But I've had, for example, 
I've had really bad OR experiences where I've um, actually been yelled at by OR staff for something that I, <laughs> I, I hadn't, the case had not even started and I literally was just standing there and I wanted to, you know, you can, exp- I think you can in a way reassure yourself that this person must be so burnt out, you know, like this anger, you know, exactly. It's like this anger is not you. It's to anyone. And especially um, with med students in the OR, it's a, you know, we joke that we're less important than the garbage can, but it's actually true. Mm -hmm. Um, However, you do get there, there, but I've also been in ORs where just the kindest people that I was working with who went out of their way and to make sure that you felt involved. And even if you're doing the littlest thing, like they would ask you, Oh, do you want to come and shave the patient? Yeah. And you, you're like, yeah, cause you want to be helpful. I think that's the biggest thing yeah. is that, you know, I don't, I, you know, I don't have to suture. I genuinely, I, I love suturing, but if I don't get the chance to suture, it's fine. But I don't want to feel like an extra body here that somehow is creating problems for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I still remember very specifically on one of my community, um, I went to, I went, I did a community general surgery observership and it was actually one of my best experiences ever. And what happened was when they gowned me, I ended up turning to the right instead of the left, um, mm. which was actually something I'd never done before, but I think I was so nervous. I turned to the right. So essentially you contaminate your entire gown. Yeah. And I immediately started profusely apologizing because I was like, Oh my God, they're going to yeah. kick yeah. me out. <laughs> they're going to be like, who's yeah. this? who's this med student who says she's scrubbed before and I remember the scrub scrub nurse looking at me and just saying no 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 don't apologize we just get you a new gown and I was like oh okay and I remember the surgeon being like oh I've done so much worse than that I you know and he's like in residency you're just learning we'll just literally get you a new gown and that was one of my best experiences for surgery and I think Mm -hmm. that for people who aren't interested in a specialty, if this is their exposure to it, mm-hmm. it's very positive. Yeah. 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 You know, but I've also had like friends who weren't interested in surgery and their very first time that they stepped foot in the OR was yeah. during clerkship and they were like chewed out, yeah. Yeah. Um, purposefully removed from the room, standing mm-hmm. Literally in the corner. Yeah, where you can't see anything. Where you can't, yeah, yeah. Can't see the exactly. Fields. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, but I also, you know, it's hard. It's hard because surgery is so high stakes. Yeah. It is so, you know, this patient, even if it's a routine operation, they can die. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, I can understand them being worried and being scared. Like, I don't, I, I completely understand if they, if sometimes, you know, especially if it's super high stakes operations and whatnot, that the med student, obviously I'm not asking to take priority. I do not want, yeah. I do not want that responsibility, mm-hmm. but I do think, you know, just having one friendly person in the OR can do oh, yeah. so much for you. Yeah. Yeah. I've had really positive experiences in mm-hmm. the OR too because mm-hmm. of that, right? Like people that, like we're there to learn. We're learners. Like, yeah, yeah. If yeah. we're standing in the corner not being able to see anything, mm-hmm. we're not learning. Oh, that's the point. Yeah. Right. So I think there's also a certain level of responsibility from the staff to get us involved because one day we are going to be doctors, right? Yes. And even even if you, in your opinion, you don't think that student is good for surgery, mm-hmm. they may still be a surgeon, right? So right. it's like you you giving them that opportunity really makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Just I, I noticed that trend of like, I feel like the majority of times 
the second scenario with Steph explained happens where it's like you make a mistake you're very self-critical because we're mm-hmm. all super self-critical mm-hmm. yeah. and then we're all like catastrophizing like oh my god oh my god i'm gonna ruin it i'm gonna ruin mm-hmm. it and then someone breaks your your little like delusional yeah, uh, you're, idea you're of catastrophizing. yeah, yeah. And it just goes pop and just goes hey you're good yeah we, we do exactly. this we're human we do this exactly and i think part of this is like i don't know how to uh, conceptualize it in a clear way but it's like the the god status of doctors maybe you know it's mm-hmm. like you're doing something that's so impactful for people mm-hmm. and you're held you, we are held to such a high standard that yeah. it's, it's hard it's hard for yeah. your your ego like you mm-hmm. have to check it because the natural progression is um you it and it's not purposeful but you you go become so hyper focused on what you're doing that mm-hmm. that you don't even recognize that you're putting people down and you're oh absolutely and you're, you, you know yeah. you're, you're you're asserting your dominance and your power in scenarios sure. that don't need it right yeah i don't think any of that's purposeful i don't think yeah, i think yeah. it's just like the 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 value of having people who are willing to be vulnerable on your team and say mm-hmm. like hey i'm we're all dumb. Like, I love that. I, that's my, like, I'm like, we're all yeah, screwed. Who cares? Yeah. Like, we're like, let's just, let's just start there. And then everyone can kind of loosen the reins of their own neuroticism a mm-hmm. little bit. And then you yeah. can, you can work together. Yeah. Like, I ultimately think that we, uh, that every, every person in healthcare medicine is at their core an empathetic, compassionate person, you know, mm-hmm. like there's, yes. And there's definitely a level of altruism there. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it's the system or other people who've been broken by the system who, you know, like end up mm-hmm. perhaps creating an environment that's not conducive to practicing your empathy. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, what can we do to culture, to nurture it instead, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm actually not sure if what I said made any sense. <laughs> um, no, I think yeah. we're saying that it's not like individual people and bad people are entering medicine and becoming surgeons and stuff like that. No, no. All specialties. Oh, there's just, there's good people. There's bad people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons why people become who they are and act the way that they are. But I think there's also a level of just, we accept the fact that that that's the way it is, which we shouldn't just accept it Mm -hmm. and that we need to push for change. And I think we're starting to see that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And and actually, that was that was something I also wanted to talk about is that like just some positivity regarding healthcare and the change that we want to see. Mm-hmm. I think I personally think a lot of it can come from qualitative research. So oh, things, you know, where you're interviewing people, where it's a lot less structured and there you don't get numbers, you get themes and you get ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel a lot of the common things that people want is space and a support system where they're able to communicate about the hard times that they had and the good times, you know, people who aren't afraid, an, an environment where people aren't afraid to point out mistakes or to say today was a hard day and this, so this and this happened. Um, and we honestly, I think we need reminders of why we love our jobs and mm-hmm. the field and what helps us flourish in it. So a lot of times I'm going back into surgery because sorry, <laughs> I just, this, that's just what I would know a little bit more on. Yeah. But it's applicable. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of surgeons reported that the mastery of a technical challenging case or procedure um, 
the intrinsically rewarding nature of their career and the beautiful relationships that they get to form mm -hmm. with their team and their patients. These are just a few reasons why they love their jobs, right? But this isn't publicized as much. We don't really talk about it as yeah. much as the financial burden, the time um, crunch, you know, like all, all of these mm -hmm. things instead. So, um, yeah, like a, like a career in medicine is one of the most meaningful experiences that one could ask for, I think. Mm -hmm. like, um, and, an, and another big thing is that like, like healthcare workers want to thrive. I think we forget, we want to be engaged. Like you said, we want to feel useful, even if it's on a specialty rotation that we are not particularly interested in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, no one wants to feel burnt out. <laughs> no. no, you know, no one wants to feel that way. And it's, it's. Or feel like they're burdening their team. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we all find comfort in knowing that we feel the same way, right? Mm -hmm. I, th I think we, we're so used to, and this isn't just medicine, just putting on a happy face. Anytime anyone asks you how you're doing, you just say good. And mm -hmm. even if you're not feeling good, you will, maybe you'll say, oh, not doing great. Ha ha. Um, you know, just to soften yeah. the load, right? So, yeah. Um, I felt that before. Like, you don't want to... <laughs> Like you're depressed as hell. A person goes, "Hey, how's it been?" <laughs> you're not gonna go. You're not gonna actually tell them the whole thing. But mm -hmm. part of you wants to. Part of you wants to be like, "Ah, oh, if we had more time, I would, I would, I, I wanna, might tell you exactly. that I'm, I'm actually struggling a little bit." You know exactly. And I think it's, and and I know that we say this almost all the time. Struggle, like we want to normalize struggling, and I, I just want to say it again. It is completely normal to struggle in fact i think every single person has struggled in medical school it, without a ever, doubt ever 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 every person ever has struggled. yeah has yeah. struggled whether that be 70 percent of your education or just 20 percent. every single person has struggled and whether it's a physical illness um or it's sometimes the social relationships that you have mm -hmm. um even wondering if this is the field for you blah 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 like mm -hmm. Every everyone has struggled, and sometimes we don't talk about it. But it doesn't mean that it didn't happen, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I and I think I think wellness is a lot more than something that you can enforce. <laughs> yeah, like uh, having obviously having very strict, um, let's say like post call days, um, mm -hmm. yeah. even uh, you know like workshops or stuff like that. That is helpful for sh for sure. But um, it's just there. There are some other techniques I think that would be very interesting to look at. So, um, for example, this concept of cognitive flow. You know, if you if you've ever heard of anything like peak experience, mm -hmm. it's when you're completely in the zone, right? Yeah. So there's eight tenets to it, which I'm not going to go into because I literally only remember three of them right now. <laughs> um, but essentially, it's this: you know, you feel time has melted away. You're so engrossed in the task, but you still feel challenged. Because if it's, for yeah. example, just typing on a computer and you feel like mm -hmm. a secretary, yeah, it's easy, but you're, it's quite boring. Yeah. Um, now, if it's way too difficult, someone threw you in, was like, remove the appendix, mm -hmm. you'd be completely in stress and there would be no balance whatsoever. But when you reach that sweet point of you have just enough skills and it's a little bit challenging, mm -hmm. that's when you get into the zone. So a flow. The problem is that in medicine, 
it's actually very difficult to achieve a flow in the hospital. Mm-hmm. The OR is one of the few places where it literally is an environment made for flow mm-hmm. because you are isolated from distractions. You have a task in front of you that, let's say if you're a well-seasoned enough surgeon, it will be um, like a good level of challenging and focus. And you have um, this, oh, I've probably already said this, but a controlled environment, right? Versus when you're on the wards. I think one of the biggest things about why um, you can't really reach flow in clinics or on the wards is you have constant distractions. It's constantly... um, it can, it can be challenging and you can feel out of depth, but you don't actually get that free space to get into the zone and at, and do things. Because the instance you get into the zone, someone comes in and says, I need you to fix this peg order or something, yeah. you know? Like, yeah, yeah. exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Um, and the thing with, with flow that's so interesting about it is that it's been shown to be correlated with wellness and improved performance as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's considered right now, like, as almost like an antidote to burnout. And there's a really interesting uh, New York Times article, actually. So the title of the article is specifically, there is a name for the blah you're feeling. It's called languishing. Mm. So the neglected middle child of mental health can dull your motivation and focus, and it may be the dominant emotion of 2021. So it's essentially talking about burnout, but during COVID. You know, this feeling that right. nothing's moving forward. Sorry, but the whole point is that flow can actually um, counter that feeling, mm-hmm. you know. And so now my question is, like, how do we promote flow in medicine? Like, how do we create opportunities that allow for it? But then this circle back to the fact that this is almost, it's almost always going to be qualitative research that's going to really be able to dig in deep and to find, like, the core mm-hmm. of the positive psychology. But yeah. The, the funding for qualitative research is is <laughs> quite little, difficult. Little to none. Little yeah. to none. Yeah. And and it takes up to 17 years for mm-hmm. any research to actually make its way into clinical guidelines. 17 years. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most of which also never make it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. I and you so. and you wonder you're like we've come up with all of these suggestions and mm-hmm. ways that we can change. And it just doesn't get done. Yeah. So. It also makes me think about, like, what's the core issue there? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, that is down to money. Mm. It's how we incentivize physicians. It's how we fund our healthcare mm-hmm. system. How many physicians we have working. What are their hours like? All of these things are usually down to money. What are we investing yeah. as a society in terms of healthcare? And that, like, goes beyond often what we can control as people within the system like it's very political yes um it can also be very cultural to healthcare like there's a lot of inertia to moving towards mm-hmm. wellness sometimes mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of oh we need this many hours this many exposures to presentations like mm-hmm. you know so it's a it's very multifactorial and there's obviously like no good answer but I think we need to look beyond just ourselves at the same time and take from other, I don't know, occupations that do it really oh, well. Oh, for sure. We should take from like psychology and mm-hmm, like economics mm-hmm. and how do we make ourselves very efficient. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think the different obstacles to wellness may be different across um, certain disciplines if that makes sense like like working in medicine might 
um, and reaching wellness might have different obstacles than if you were working in business. But I think the fundamental um, like themes of what prevents you from reaching wellness is probably the same. Mm-hmm. You know, like the time constraint, as you mentioned, financial burdens, mm-hmm. um, toxic environment. But um, yeah, and, and it's it's just, you know, if there's one thing that I really also want to emphasize today is that there's this quote from Chuck the Intern in The House of God. And once I very, I do recommend The House of God as a book. Mm-hmm. I think I really disliked it for the first 100 pages because you have to get used to the writing and the fact oh, yeah. that it was written in 1979, I think. Some, Something so like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, the quote is, how can we care for patients if nobody cares for us? Right. And I think that's a... That's it's a very true point. Yeah, you know, like I, I think the yeah. best physicians are those who are at peace with themselves, and mm-hmm. but it's asking a lot to require mm-hmm. for people to find peace within this system that is so mm-hmm. constrained and overburdened and, and blah blah. Demand yeah. and it demands so mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. of you. Mm-hmm. And it's like I, I think about like other high stress, high uh, demanding mm-hmm. jobs. Mm-hmm empathy and compassion isn't a requirement for those people no no you know so it's like and of course in 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 people that are successful in any field that's there Mm -hmm. but it's a prerequisite for us for for a good interaction Mm -hmm. so so it becomes this very complicated thing because to do your job you're kind of well you're you're um emptying that tank slowly you know Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. where's the where's the Where's the compassion for yourself or the people in your family or when you come exactly. home or whatever? It's exactly. like, it make, it just adds that much more to what Andrew was saying, like a multifactorial thing that has political and economical, mm-hmm. uh, you know, tinges as well. Like, for sure. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a, there's a dissonance that is so uncomfortable when you, as, uh, as we are very compassionate and empathetic individuals are unable to provide the best care for our patients, let's say, because of these um, constraints within the system. Mm-hmm. And then you have the dissonance of, like you said, uh, with in terms of your family, of coming home and providing them with only what's left of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know that you can do better. And it's, it's like, oh, okay, so you can keep a happy face for the patients that you see, but you can't treat your family the same way. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the burden of, trying to do the best for your patient but then being unable to and feeling guilty about it and mm-hmm. you know and it's a lot of internalized um yeah yeah i think yeah. it's interesting when people from the outside like not in healthcare, take a look at doctors and see that a lot of them are burnt out or complaining about their jobs and stuff and then you'll hear like but oh, you get paid so much Mm-hmm. Yeah. like you're compensated so well so it's obviously worth it they're like well i work a minimum wage job with a lot of hours too and with way less pay right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and i think at the core of that is like is the money worth the sacrifice and then mm-hmm. i think for us sometimes we think we're underpaid yeah even though you're in like top one percent of society when, when yeah. you're a yeah I, actually yeah like one of the biggest um like negative contributors to surgery was that they felt that they weren't compensated enough for the hours that they worked mm-hmm. um especially in terms of like you know like on call and blah 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 so right yeah 
So if we had more surgeons working, so everyone has less burden in terms of hours, but mm-hmm. everyone got paid less, do you think people would be more happy? I think that that's mm. a very conceptual question. Like that would, I feel like there's a lot more that would have to go into that, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I, I would guess no. no. <laughs> and it because, you know, how our brain works is it's always relative, you know? It's like, yeah. it's like what pe- people will see is we got a pay cut. Or we got downgraded yeah. or whatever. But maybe maybe that the valuation systems that we're using are starting to change as well, which I think mm-hmm. is happening maybe after the, the, the past two years, you know, at least for me, has shown me how much I was overvaluing monetary yeah. things and assets in the future and what my future is going to look like. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. And this might be, this is a little vulnerable to say, but like, because this makes me sound like a narcissist, but I, I would put X hundred thousand in my head or a oh, number yeah. in my head. Easily. And then I'd sit there and be like, okay, well, will this amount make me, you know, like, am I feel, and I'd feel good after a certain number, but yeah. none of it is based in reality. No. I've never earned much money at all. Yeah. Like, I don't know what, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What... It's like suddenly we're asking for like $500,000 yeah. and I've only previously worked like a minimum wage job exactly why am i entitled to that i'm consistently in debt like i've had no income for many years but yeah like um actually what they found uh so this is something i learned from the happiness lab podcast Mm, great podcast oh yeah absolutely when you reach seventy five thousand dollars a year usd your happiness does not increase with the amount of money that you make. Like just once you reach that line, that amount of earnings, you will not become happier because you get richer, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's, and this is a, and and then there's this other quote um, from, um, it's a book by Paulo Coelho called Veronica Decides to Die. And then the quote in it is that, it actually, it made a comparison. This was true at the time. This was about like the 1980s, Mm -hmm. how, um, you know, like in Brazil, in uh, at that time, there was a lot of like unrest. Mm-hmm. But, and then you compared it to Canada, which was like this peaceful utopia. But in Canada, it was finding that one in 10. Um, is someone here? Oh, <laughs> is that Lewis? Yeah. Oh Yo. my gosh, come up, come up. <laughs> we can edit things out. No, we should oh, keep dude. this in. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Oh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We were just talking so about sexy. money and happiness now. Yeah. Oh, nice. If you wanted to jump. I was just Definitely saying helps. how. Um, Definitely helps. Well, yeah, that is also not wrong. How did Lewis not get screened out of that? How, how did Lewis <laughs> not? <laughs> no. no, we've talked about this before about like, because I was eavesdropping from the stairwell trying not to disrupt you guys, but it is interesting how like we physicians talk a lot about burnout and happiness and. Um, but aren't we willing to take a pay cut? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. And like burnout is is we're we're we have like a good inward gaze of research and like ability to quantify our burnout that like truck drivers and factory workers and things don't have. Right. Yeah. And get paid a lot less, but right. it's yeah. like happiness across workers in all industries is so important and so undervalued. And yeah. physicians are are part of that group financially compensated much better than many others but it still right. doesn't you know make for a good life if you're miserable and yeah making x dollars it might it definitely makes it easier to be miserable because you're not also mm-hmm. having to worry about financial stress and right. you know mm-hmm. all yeah. of the, the myriad difficulties it brings in your life but 
Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's not, I don't think in the end of anyone's life they've been like, yeah, I was miserable the whole way through, but boy, was I rich. (laughs) (laughs) On on your deathbed, you're like, all I really needed Mm. was this pile of cash. Oh, yes. No, I don't want the warm embrace of my family. I want, I want this cash. (laughs) Yeah, my stocks did yeah oh can you imagine that was the last yeah. thing you ever said i'm on my deathbed and my mm. children are yeah around me like dad dad please <laughs> we haven't last, seen you last words like yeah we haven't seen you <laughs> 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 what are the last words you have for me and then, uh, yeah. just be like just don't don't sell the stock <laughs> hold hold please hold, hold the apple stock <laughs> invest in tesla <laughs> yeah but, yeah I, I do think oh, like right. you know money Money, like it, it is the old saying, money can't buy happiness. Right. It does help. Yeah. You it know? does. Definitely yeah, it does. Help. It definitely. Just ha- to having a good amount of financial freedom, I'd say. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. Oh, go for it, Bill. It's a weird. It's a weird paradigm as well. The whole because, you know, it's very valid to me when a person from a completely so different socioeconomic situation goes, "What could you be complaining about?" Mm-hmm. I understand that because. I've uh, I've gotten to live in places where people didn't have nearly oh, as much. Yeah, for so sure. it's like it, but it's it's weird because all these things are so relative as well. Absolutely. Yes. Problem, I think yeah. that's a big thing and um and that was the quote that I was trying to say was that um like from from the book Veronica decides to die and it they were saying how in Canada at that time in the 1980s like 1 in 10 um adults face depression and experience depression and to someone who's growing up in like a war-torn country um where there was unrest every single day they were shocked that this utopia of peace Mm -hmm. that anyone Mm -hmm. could be upset um and the quote was the happier that people can be the unhappier they choose to be um Mm -hmm. and I know I, I don't know if I fully agree with happiness as a choice because obviously there's mm-hmm. a yeah. lot with um, especially like psychiatric illnesses with the environment genetic predisposition mm-hmm. but if we take a if we look at it a little bit separately in the sense that you know like grass is always greener mm-hmm. right um, this idea that if you were richer if you had better hours if you had this new car and if you had this boat you'd be happier mm-hmm. yeah so. I think the relativity thing is a mm-hmm. big issue because there's a book called Utopia for Realists. It's, it's basically about, I think, universal income and sort of the arguments for why it could improve society, basically, mm-hmm. and how it would be effective and all of that. And some of the research that was done that in countries like the U.S. where um, the spread of income is much larger, they're actually less happy than, than in countries where it's like narrower but overall like absolute income was lower mm-hmm. right so because you can compare to other people within your own society and be like well these people are making so much more than me mm-hmm. you become a lot unhappier mm-hmm. right so what if we just brought everyone sort of closer to the middle and i think that's been a conversation for a while now like what if we make trying to make society a little more equal with things mm-hmm. like universal basic income yeah like for that. sure well it's, it's relevant within healthcare because you have such you have such income disparity between this is probably a controversial topic on a medical student podcast but <laughs> well, income disparity between specialties between yeah. healthcare oh, professions sure. and you see mm-hmm. like mandated caps on nursing pay in ontario and you see the difficulties they're having with nursing burnout mm-hmm. um, with work stress with mm-hmm. difficulty even getting uh vacation approved yeah. um 
every, I don't know if you guys been on a department that wasn't short staffed of nurses recently, like every no, single like department. Every, mm-hmm. Yeah. Every single one. And you wonder if, um, you know, there's a little bit of inequality just within or inequity just within how healthcare professions are paid that mm-hmm. might contribute to a healthier, more robust, resilient healthcare system. If those things were a little more. Mm-hmm. You know, ophthalmologists in Alberta getting paid 1.2 mil on average <laughs> versus on average. Oh, wow. you know, wow. nurses taking so, home here, here 30 we, bucks an hour. <laughs> I, I think Lewis and Andrew want us uh, to become communists. I, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, but I... Um, no, Listen, I, comrades. Yeah, just, <laughs> just... They're just very... Socialists and surgery, baby. I think that should that should be the title of the podcast, Socialism and Surgery and uh, Marxism and Medicine. Q, Q Red. Yeah. <laughs> How to get yourself red flagged. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Right. Wave it proudly. <laughs> this is going to surface later. Yeah. 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 Have trouble in our future political careers. Yeah. I'll wipe it. (laughs) This can be edited out. (laughs) I don't think think our progressivism is going to be very easy to hide in the future. Yeah. (laughs) Nor would I want it to be. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what you said is totally logical. It's like the dynamics are going to be different. If you can't, if the person is getting one point two million dollars and everyone else is not even close to that stratosphere, it's hard. Like uh, if that person doesn't have any checks for themselves to ground themselves into what mm-hmm. they're doing and what this is actually for mm-hmm. or who this is actually for, um, then the, the, the only place the human mind will go is, is narcissism. And mm-hmm. that that's natural. It's not even a slight to that specific person. It's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely been shown time and time again. Yeah. And it's very easy to say that other people are making even more than you are. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Like you, uh, yeah. Like you mentioned Andrew with, it's the possibility of knowing that you can earn more. Yeah. yeah. That really messes with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also interesting to think at the core of that, like what should we incentivize and how much is something worth? Like what the way that we incentivize physicians way back in terms of a lot of procedural things were paid more mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm. like that, like a fee for service versus, I don't know, where they pool all of their billings together and split among all of the physicians, which is mm-hmm. how often academic centers do their pay. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that affect work? How does that affect wellness, efficiency, all of that? And I think it's very, very interesting to think about. Like, mm-hmm. For whatever reason, we value certain things that physicians do more than nurses do in terms of compensation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you factor in the amount of years you have to study and residency and all of that. Mm-hmm. And how do we quantify that? Like, mm-hmm. what? how do we come up with the numbers to pay people? based on all of those factors yeah or was it just somebody decided like okay this is how much you're getting paid for sure or advocacy groups were well represented in those discussions when they happened in the 90s and 2000s exactly yeah yeah it's a tricky problem that hopefully our generation will work with previous generations to solve a bit because i think it's it's like for it to have a good robust accessible primary care system that reaches everyone in smaller communities and isn't just sort of an urban centric specialist driven mm-hmm. healthcare system we 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 need to figure out ways to to make sure that you know voices and skills are represented well and also compensated based fairly on mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. on their um, contributions which i don't think right now is i don't think any, you know many nurses um especially in Ontario right now are, are saying that they're they're fairly compensated for their skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tough situation. For sure. And they hold so, such a brunt of the 
realities of healthcare. Like they are the oh, pulse, yeah. they're the pulse of every mm-hmm. every uh, you know uh, hospital. Mm-hmm. It's tough. When I when I did my interprofessional shift during a merge where you have to have oh. a nurse, yeah. we were in section A. Mm-hmm. Holy, it was so busy. She was constantly running from patient to patient. Everyone mm-hmm. was like, nurse, yeah. nurse, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I yeah. need something. And she's like putting in IVs and then putting in the labs and then drawing blood. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is what your shift is like for 12 hours? Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, I have, I'll order less tests. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna change how it I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm very sorry yeah. for how we treat you guys. You gotta order it all together at once. Yes. <laughs> Don't be ordering tests every like 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on nephro right now. And it's the level of expertise required to manage patients through dialysis to help, mm-hmm. you know, we have patients who need emergent dialysis who are getting rushed up from section A by a nurse um, hooked up to dialysis to, you know, potentially prevent a life saving or prevent a life uh, threatening condition. Mm -hmm. Um, They're dealing with the sickest of the sick patients with a huge wealth of expertise. Mm -hmm. And yet they're having a really hard time recruiting new nurses to work there because, because of that partially because Mm -hmm. the skill sets demands are so high and the compensation is, doesn't reflect it at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the couple words we write on a green sheet is so much more work mm. on the other end. Yeah. Like we're just like CBC. Yeah. Like, daily, mm-hmm. daily CBC. Like, and that's <laughs> someone going, you know, you have a patient who's a really difficult blood draw and then suddenly that's, you know, an extra 20 minutes a morning yeah. that took us three seconds and to, to thoughtlessly write sometimes, yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. are those tests necessary? Mm-hmm. Is that workload on that nurse being reflected in our choices? Probably mm-hmm. not. Yeah, and then it goes back to, let's say it's not done by the time you get there. Um, and sometimes, you know, if not you guys, I'm going to say, let's say a physician arrives and certain things aren't done, then, you know, they get mad and then mm-hmm. they sort of propagate that feelings amongst mm-hmm. the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everyone has a bad day and, and yeah. it's, yeah. it's like <laughs> everybody everybody, and, and it's like, um, you know, it took you three seconds to write this order and it's taking us so much longer to actually process it and to do literal things. So I, I feel yeah. like a lot of times, you know, like as physicians, we are technically behind the scenes, but we're not really behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Like we don't really see everything that goes on when, like you said, we order tests, yeah. we order vitals even. You know, and Q, Q4. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Q, yeah. The Q4 vitals. And then the, you know, the nurses have to wake up the patients um, yeah, in the middle all of the night. night. Yep. Then the patients get mad at not you, the physician who ordered it, mm-hmm. but the nurse yeah. <laughs> yeah. who is trying to do her job or his job. And um, it's like, did you really yeah. need that ALP? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did it ultimately change anything? You know? I wonder if I wonder if we could make this like a call to training institutions for physicians and for nurses because we for more interprofessional training throughout the process. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So we Absolute, end up in yeah. these silos. Like we are in these interprofessional spaces in the end, but really our training is completely siloed. So yep. why was it that when we were going through pre-clerkship and through clerkship now mm-hmm. That we don't have team-based projects with nursing, with physio, with respiratory therapy. I've never with, met them, yeah. to be honest. I've never met them. Never, yeah, no, until I, we get to the hospital, and I think it's. Yeah. I think this is one of the first steps to flatten the hierarchy. Yes. And I. Mm. 
I personally, I hate, I hate the hierarchy. I don't think yeah. there, some, you know, some people argue you need a hierarchy to keep things running. Mm-hmm. I think it's a deterrent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Having a leader of a team does not mean that there is a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. You know, right. like, like that, those are two very different things. I think people think mm-hmm. that leader means, oh, they are the, the, like the, the top, the top no. of the hierarchy. No, mm-hmm. it, yeah. it doesn't. A leader is not a, like, pharaoh or, you know, like an yeah. emperor. No, the, the whole point is to work as a team. Yeah, right. The so, leader is like yeah. the support person for every team member. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Helps, yeah. In an helps ideal. you helps you see how you are valuable and yeah. you, you know sees mm-hmm. you know helps mm-hmm. you grow the things that are good in you. Mm-hmm. I think there is starting to be a push towards that though. I've seen some stuff coming out of like the Faculty of Health Sciences and Dr. Phil Pot and stuff about like more interprofessional. That's good. Education. Excellent. Yeah. Didn't we have one day where yeah. where there was like nurses and PTs and OTs and med students? Did so we that, and then it not happened or something. <laughs> so they had it the canceled? the year before us. They had the leadership symposium, nice. and yeah. um, which which I heard a lot of good things about. But then I also heard the criticism, which was that it was led by physicians. Mm. And so uh-huh. you're holding this interdisciplinary leadership conference, mm. but it's still led by the group <laughs> that has the most institutional power. It's it's you like the, it's like the diversity <laughs> panels. Yes. <laughs> and you can imagine what the yeah. panel looks like. Right? Yeah, so, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So did we end up having our leadership symposium? I felt like it got canceled. It, it was like supposed to be on March 21st, 2020. Yeah. So I think it got, got super yeah. canceled. Yeah, it was in the, it was in the old happened. world. Yeah. No. But yeah, and I, I can't imagine the level of burnout now with COVID. Oh, yeah, of like, course. I, it's oh man, it was already so, so high. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like one of the um, uh, I have to search it up again. This poor memory, this clerkship brain. Um, <laughs> too busy memorizing. Yeah, too. And, and there's the op-ed. So as a doctor in a COVID unit, I'm running out of compassion for the unva- unvaccinated get the shot by um, Anita Sirkar in the, Los Angeles, the LA Times. Um, and I think this came out like decently recently. Um, and it's pretty, it's well written for sure. But I think there's um, like an aspect of Aside from people who are very, very much way too deep in the anti-vaxxing uh, circles, mm. yes. you know, some some people are a little too lost in the sauce. But um, for the majority of them, I, I think it's there's there's been a huge amount of misinformation. And like we were talking about at the very beginning of the podcast, this idea of health literacy, mm-hmm. not everyone has it. You know, and how do you mm-hmm. explain the vaccine to people who haven't had this education that we have had? Mm-hmm. You know, like we we know about mRNA most of the population when they hear mrna they think dna yes mm-hmm. yeah and 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 then it's it's not good enough for you know people who do understand mrna what mrna is or like this people mm-hmm. with a science background who just laugh on on our high horses being like ha 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 you don't yeah. even know what mrna is right? mm-hmm. but instead human. instead <laughs> instead it's like how do we educate them so they do understand and how do we mm-hmm. Yeah, how how do how do how do we cross this gap of health mm-hmm. literacy yeah. and misinformation and to have actually at the end of the day empathy for people who are afraid to get vaccinated. Right. Mm-hmm. And so. and they're the ones who are at risk of dying from yeah, severe ab- absolutely. COVID-19. They are off yeah, you know? it's all linked. Yeah. yeah. 
it's a, the vast majority of, of patients in Ontario's ICUs are, are unvaccinated. And yeah. the remainder is, mm-hmm. you know, more partially vaccinated than fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And then you see people at rallies. And I mean, it speaks to the caregiver burnout, like we were talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, with nursing and respiratory therapy and physicians and everyone else contributing to the teams, seeing rallies like this outside, being exhausted by them for what they represent mm-hmm. as a challenge to all the work that they've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, all the work that nurses and et cetera have been doing. Mm-hmm. But then they also have this conflicting empathy, which is going, oh my gosh, these people have been so misinformed. Absolutely. They're in this ecosystem of information where, mm-hmm. you know, powerful people are exploiting them for political gain. They're mm-hmm. telling them that yeah. getting vaccinated has this risk and this risk and yeah. this risk, mm-hmm. not backed mm-hmm. up by the science. And then they're, the people attending these rallies then go on to be the ones hugely at risk of dying from, mm-hmm. from severe COVID-19. And it's just... Uh, yeah, there you, you wish there was a way that you could articulate to people who are, you know, walking to these rallies that a kind of pissing everyone off and B, you know, this is a real this is a real threat that is now yeah. at this point a, pre- a preventable cause of death for the most part. Yes. Um, yeah. So that I mean, that's that we, we had that uh, counter rally the other day because mm-hmm. there was outside of KGH. Um, they had, you know, the the. A political party unnamed here, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and the anti-vaxxers held a little um, held a little uh, you know loud microphone session <laughs> um, to you know to talk about the dangers of vaccines to pro to, you know protest vaccine mandates things like that mm-hmm. and then some students got together and held a die-in um, where we held up some signs you know. Talk, the, there was some. They were designed to look like tombstones, mm-hmm. and on the tombstones were sort of common misconceptions about vaccines. And mm-hmm. then we laid down at the site of the protest, put the signs up to represent, "Hey, you know, these are things that people believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you might share these beliefs, but this is a real disease. Mm-hmm. There's a real risk of harm. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to see you ending up lying in an ICU bed, regretting your decision to postpone." Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is the heartbreak of this. I. I it's blame is a tricky concept, I think, in this whole thing, because you know you want to, like these these protests, that, like they do piss me off. Yeah, um, oh, undoubtedly. But who's to blame? Like I I don't blame someone in an ICU for their own yeah, death. Because you know? yeah, like at the end of the day, they're human being. They are human beings with families, and they've had mm-hmm. a life, and they're mm-hmm. and then they they end up in the ICU from these series of decisions that they made, and. Yep. Mm-hmm. Things they've been exposed to. Exactly. And on a lot of those times, those decisions weren't actually their choice. Yep. Of course. Yeah. And it's... Do you guys have family members with these beliefs? Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. No, you're... I know. (laughs) The perfect family. (laughs) I will say that... um, I I might... I don't want to be like it's a cultural thing, but there definitely is more wariness towards Western... Yes. Uh, medicine. Oh, so yes. there, there is a lot of, you know, for example, if let's say you've had insomnia for three months and you've tried like melatonin or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. um, and now you want to, you want to take zoplicone or something, or your physician is my, um, recommending zoplicone or like trazodone or blah blah mm-hmm. blah. I'd say like people in my family would be very against that. So they wouldn't mm-hmm. want to take a medication like that, and they would turn yeah. towards herbal teas and right. um, like mm-hmm. Chinese medicine mm-hmm. and foods that you can eat mm-hmm. and I think that was also like a part of their approach to COVID like mm-hmm. everyone in my family is ultimately vaccinated um, 
well, my family in China didn't have a choice, but uh, either way, like they, they got vaccinated. The thing is that the vaccine in um, that was made in China uses like a dis- dis- disassembled um, like a viral proteins, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's not mRNA, so it's not. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, it, it's it's like a it's a different form of vaccine mm-hmm. that. Um, was more acceptable to my family members there and um, that my family members in Canada also would have preferred to have gotten rather than the MRNA. Okay. So um, I think that was, they had no problems with getting vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I guess it was, it was, it was the vaccine. Okay. Well that, that still sounds like, (laughs) but it it was like, um, it took a lot more of the, of, of, of discussion. I'd say. Mm-hmm. And I and I think the reason why I was willing to have these discussions was because they were my little family members, right? Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of times we don't have that same patience for strangers. And yeah. one of the biggest problems with today is that everyone has access to the internet. Well, essentially, mm-hmm. everyone yes. has access to, quote on, like, quotation marks, expert opinions and information. Right. But it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of it is, and the amount of times that I heard in clinic, I Googled that this could happen and that right. this could happen. Oh. And I'm like, oh. Oh my gosh, we yes, <laughs> numerous times, so many times mm-hmm. with um, this. Uh, I just, I still, I will never get over this one patient telling me that COVID was just the flu with a kick. <laughs> and I, and I just thinking, I was like, <laughs> it's like the flu with a with a curb stomp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like the flu with a kick and a baseball bat and yes, um, a large yes. tank. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I think that it's 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 more of a flu if you get both your doses. <laughs> like, I, right. you know, it's it's a lot mm-hmm. less severe yeah. in that case. Or people saying people who get vaccinated still get COVID. Mm-hmm. Yes, but a much less severe course. Like that's mm-hmm. also the mm-hmm. point of the yeah. vaccine. So, yeah, I've had I've had mm-hmm. probably the like my direct family, same thing. Everyone's vaccinated, mm-hmm. and there's always a trust in that in that. Um, mm-hmm the medicine is vetted and all that stuff but the further you go out like my family members a little farther out i've heard some crazy stuff especially early early on like you know i had one family friend show me a video of a girl having a seizure i was Mm. like look look five (laughs) five minutes after the vaccine and i'm like oh Oh wow, this is and that's the thing though. It's like we have the internet oh, where any yeah. question you have, there's an answer. There's yeah. an answer or many answers many that are just like, but there's no vetting for anything. Mm-hmm. And then I feel that to some degree, this is a problem of knowledge translation at a huge, at the biggest scale that's ever yeah, happened. Absolutely. And people yeah. are people are like dis. I think, I think people are used to hearing from a few voices and trusting those voices, at least mm-hmm. historically in our mm-hmm. society, and now. You hear from everyone. You hear from everyone. And even <laughs> yeah. within our communities, we don't have a very clear idea of what we're sharing to people and the, the way that either either the way that the media portrayed it or the way that we kind of, we're all in our own little silos, we helped push this as well. For yeah. sure. You know, because yeah. those, those people uh, that are out there feel disenfranchised by their country and by, by everything around them, you know, yeah. but like there's no, at least now, there's no clear bridge and it, and it clearly isn't us going you know, to a penthouse suite and saying, oh, there's, <laughs> oh, they're not getting vaccinated. Right? <laughs> yeah. We told them, we told them, whatever. That's not bridging the gap, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All of it is, is anchored in 
fear and distrust, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of the narrative is coming about like, oh, it's going to hurt you, it's going to mm-hmm. hurt your health. Mm-hmm. Or we see a certain overlap of demographic of people and certain political views. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of overlap. And what's the reason behind that, right? There's a certain distrust of our political system, of mm-hmm. our leaders and things yeah, like that's... that. Um, I think it like harkens back to Steph, what you're saying. I, you know, there are certain, there are a lot of ethnic and cultural groups where that mistrust is, is so legitimate. Yeah. And then to have mistrust of the vaccine almost seems like such a natural response. Mm -hmm. Um, but then that it's at the same time, it's so dangerous, you know, and, and you want to get past that misinformation, but the damage was done and, and continues to be done in our, in our healthcare system in Canada. Mm that alienates people from a ton of backgrounds and, mm-hmm. and, and stokes this mistrust very mm-hmm. fairly. So yeah. how, I don't know how you even begin to address vaccine yeah. hesitancy in, in those groups while also yeah. giving, you know, the respect that their mm-hmm. often horrific experiences exactly. Um, exactly. deserve. So it's, it's a really tough problem. Yeah. And even for, and, and then you have people like when, Mr. Trump was in power, telling people to that hydroxychloroquine. I was thinking of, of fluoroquine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. um, that he, you know, he was, he was like, yeah, you can use that to, uh, to treat yeah. your COVID. Like, people were willing to use anti-malarials. Yeah. To use, like, I, I think at, now there's, like, some cream from a goat. Like, or cream for horses. Like, people are willing to put everything <laughs> in their bodies, but... Yeah, ivermectin. Yeah, something like... And, I, I, and it's shocking, and I... Yeah. You know, I've gotten patients who said that I take zinc and I take vitamin C, therefore I'm immune. Yeah. And I... I oh my gosh, you can, I'm actually so tired just even repeating <laughs> these conversations because I was like... How do you, how, honestly, how do I approach this with you? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you want to meet, how, like how genuinely, you want to meet people where they're at, but yes, with, yeah. with the amount of information there is that the variety of where they're at could be so high. Like mm-hmm. you don't know. Exactly. It's a hard place to start yeah. from. And I, I genuinely, even though, you know, I sound exasperated, but it's, I actually feel a lot of empathy for mm-hmm. these people because I'm like, look, if I had a different education, I could be thinking exactly the same thing like this. Mm-hmm. You oh, know, yeah. like some of my business friends. <laughs> I would be. Who drop sciences in grade like ten? Even they were a bit. They were very wary about getting the vaccine because they oh, didn't yes. understand it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were, you know, they're fortunate that I, I, I had some education, you know, and I was like explaining things to them. Yeah. But imagine if you didn't have that, you know, mm-hmm. and um, so. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like paradoxical, but we need to be more compassionate to those people in a, in a weird yeah, way you know because yeah. it, it can't be that we turn mm-hmm. and say like uh-huh. oh well you're wrong and you're dangerously mm-hmm. wrong and well, well mm-hmm. you know we know where this goes it's yeah. going to be violence and, mm-hmm. and and only more grief and pain you know mm-hmm. um but it's like being compassionate understanding with where the, the where they're coming from is somewhere very dark some that that this pandemic has taken away from so many of us and maybe maybe you can argue most of us you know yeah um and and who lord knows what they've gone through but mm-hmm. yeah somehow bridging that into like hey we're we're people too we're we're mm-hmm. we're feeling this yeah. too this sucks yeah. this sucks yeah. I mean, you know absolutely mm-hmm. and still bringing in the the the, the real like empirical facts about what's what the vaccine sure. actually is yeah 
And and I I and like Lewis was saying, I think having mistrust in the healthcare system and that's not un like that that's not unfounded. That's not unfounded yeah. at all. Yeah. Weird. I, yeah. I, you know, there was like the, um, especially for disenfranchised groups, yeah. um, the experiment of untreated syphilis in mm-hmm. black men in the States mm-hmm. that went mm-hmm. on for however long, um, even like the tainted blood scandal in Canada, there mm-hmm. are these, yeah. these very, very large scale things that have happened within healthcare. So when something like this pandemic comes around and already tensions are high mm-hmm. and now they... Yeah, technically speaking, if you don't look at the facts behind it, it, it looks like the vaccine came out of nowhere. You know, like it just mm-hmm. poofed. Obviously, as you know, as you get educated about the topic, you mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a lot mm-hmm. of it had to do with funding. It was already being made for the SARS um, pandemic and all of this yeah. stuff. Um, so, yeah. yeah, but all of these, it's yeah, and and, and I I think it's it's true. Like um, Nabil said about actually having more empathy. Mm-hmm. For them and and yeah. having that, you know, a time. Oh, now and then we go back to having the time to actually educate. Yeah, educate. So, it, yeah. like during these appointments where you have three patients at once and you <laughs> see them yeah. for ten minutes and you have to, oh my god, and then do the whole EMR stuff. So, yeah. well, there's a yeah. maybe we can link in the show notes, but there's yeah, um, there's a group in University of Calgary that is like a vaccine hesitancy clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a lot of resources being developed by primary mm-hmm. care, being developed by nursing, being developed by epidemiologists, infectious disease docs, mm-hmm. the WH, like there is a good accessible resources. Cause they know this problem exists of like, especially in primary care, like you don't oh, have time in yeah. a 15 minute conversation mm-hmm. to address everyone's concerns about mistrust mm-hmm. of healthcare, right. you know, talk about the science of the vaccine and then advocate for them to get vaccinated for their family. Mm-hmm. You don't, it's 15 minute visit. They also have, you know, uh, they're having an MI. I don't know what their yeah. presentation is, but you're busy dealing with other things. So mm-hmm. having quick accessible resources that are widely disseminated is also a huge part of this, which right. I think at this point in the pandemic does exist well. It's just a matter of like connecting people with, with valid, yeah. easily accessible, well-made, mm-hmm. you know, at a reading level that is, you know, accessible to a broad array of patient groups translated into many yeah. languages, et cetera. But yeah, um, but, but yeah, mm-hmm. Steph, back to your point about the empathy um mm-hmm. for these groups piece. i i do i have trouble with it because i think i split it into two groups broadly one is the people that are very i have a lot of empathy for mm-hmm. the other i have much less and oh, the first yeah. group the q and honors <laughs> well, I, I i i split into groups one is the people who are misinformed and the other are the people who are exploiting this for political gain right yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and i think that was shown really well in the yeah. rally outside kgh today mm-hmm. was because you have local political candidates there mm-hmm. trying yeah. to get themselves elected and then you also uh-huh. have people who are there because yeah. they've been you know mm-hmm. a- had part of a, a bad information ecosystem yeah yeah and so i i i have less empathy and less tolerance and i really think it's important that we actively combat the people in positions of power who Mm -hmm. are espousing these views while being empathetic to the people who are suffering and dying Mm -hmm. from encountering them right but um yeah i think it's also interesting how at least I think in a lot of Western societies, there's this like hyper individualism. Yes. And also yeah. how we put like the idea of personal autonomy, like that right, human right, the freedom. at the very top. Yeah. Like, we're yeah. like, if we don't have personal autonomy, then we have nothing else in this mm-hmm. world. Right? Yeah, for sure. And there's this idea of the social contract theory, right? We all live 
harmoniously in some ways because we can lean on each other. Like if we didn't have yeah. people working at the grocery stores, how are we going to get groceries? Exactly. Like we're all interconnected way more than we actually yeah. realize. Mm-hmm. And we all actually lean on each other so much more than oh, we for realize. Sure. So we can't just be seeing ourselves as these individuals with no consequences to our actions. And I think that's where mm-hmm. a lot of the narrative of, oh, these people are so selfish come from. But that makes them feel worse. It's like we, it's dichotomous, you know, mm-hmm. we, we are in a society that is very individualistic in North mm-hmm. America, at least. You're, you are free to make your own decisions. And like mm-hmm. you said, personal autonomy reigns over everything else. Um, and now we're asking them essentially in a way to do something for the greater good right. of everyone. So it's, it could be for some people, it's very difficult for them to make peace with both of these ideas mm-hmm. that you can be an individual, but you still have certain responsibilities for society because mm-hmm. ultimately you are being, you are served by society the same way that you serve society as well. Right. Like even from something as simple as your cup of coffee, someone had to make it, mm-hmm. someone had to construct where, mm. oh, now it's going to sound like sponsorship, but like where Balzac's was, <laughs> you know, like someone Balzac. had, Perhaps yeah, delicious, warm. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had to build the machine. Uh, this, this podcast is fun. <laughs> yeah. I just had an Americano from there this morning, Nabil. It was uh, great. Balzac's <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 that, that can be our end up. <laughs> All of us just whisper. Is this Balzac's sponsored ASMR? Balzac's. <laughs> <laughs> You jiggle the um the coffee around in your cup right next to the <laughs> the sound of a oh, nice pour. Yeah. <laughs> but Balzac's is actually great. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but um, I, the point is that a lot of work went into Balzac's from a lot of people. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, stop. That all the stuff that you're talking about, like. It's it, it is this multifactorial kind of complete storm of things, and you know, in there are those two groups. It's certainly mm-hmm. there is there is one group that's um, it's much more politicized, and it's much more about like, well, we're pissed off about what's happening, and what's happening sucks, and it's the freedom that we've lost ha- is never going to come back. But it's like we're all processing what's going on like mm-hmm. everyone everyone feels a version of that mm-hmm. right but it's like you going back to the social contract of things well okay well what is what is that really doing for anyone else you know mm-hmm. you there there are many more ways to even to have that view and still be able to function in this and in a way that mm-hmm. pushes people towards uh, some sort of normalcy mm-hmm. i mean we're the numbers are good right we mm-hmm. just need we just need to keep going on the trajectory we're going on without any huge uh disruption in it mm-hmm. and and it's and it's looking very favorable yeah mm-hmm. i, I yeah. feel i feel like maybe the the only wrong uh perspective is being overly sure about any one thing right. with yeah. the covid thing it's just like yeah if you're overly sure you're probably yeah mm-hmm. you've probably been reading too much of one thing or, yeah. Or yeah whatever yeah. Mm-hmm. this is also like not our first global pandemic nor will it mm-hmm. be our last no so Practice we have round. to invest in how we will tackle this the next time exactly yeah i I had lots of opinions of the way that it was handled at the beginning. Yeah. It, it was very much in it. It's been shown countries with lower COVID rates 
you at the beginning you have to have some sort of draconian measure to be completely Mm -hmm. honest and it sucks but it sucks for six weeks you know or the same way that iceland like just eradicated um covid they had they had um private investigators hired to track where like um to to plan like criminologists were recruited in order to be able to find like where you know like where where this covid (laughs) where the covid cases started so i think in that case you had a lot of violation of privacy like privacy but in a pandemic like what how else are you going to find every person who possibly might have been exposed right Mm -hmm. Where's that balance? Like, it is about yeah, it is the balances. Yeah, it's good. It's obviously it's clearly not at the very extremes of either, right? Like it's mm-hmm. clearly not. Um, let's just go. Let's all go out to the bar at the same time. No, and, no. And shout at each other. <laughs> I also like, don't think that you know, like tanks should be going up and down the streets to make sure you mm-hmm. stay in your yeah. home. No, <laughs> but no. so it's like a nice, yeah. nice balance. But it's interesting because there's also things outside of law enforcement that are hugely effective ways to get people to stay at home that North America never enacted. Things mm. like paid sick leave. Yes, mm. it, yes. You know, like absolutely. If people are if sick and like, have to work. yeah, yeah mm-hmm. they're working anyways. It's mm-hmm. going to spread. Mm-hmm. Whether it's enforced or not, they still have to feed their family. Mm-hmm. Versus if you can just you know allow people to stay home allow yeah, kids to stay food. Home. Yeah. totally totally yeah. Um, so think you know things like that i think were yeah. missed uh intentionally mm-hmm. uh often at the beginning of the pandemic and it's yeah. now we're paying the price for that mm-hmm. in korea they had all these amazing like care packages yeah like, oh gosh you, like, all these amazing things and so like, you don't yeah. want to yeah. break your quarantine and exactly. spread the virus yeah. you know and it's it, in the long run. It's it's so much. Those things seem costly at the time, but they're so much cheaper. Like how much does oh the persist? There was a great quote I heard somewhere, which was like people people have gotten the fr- into the framing that lockdowns are the one. It's lockdown versus economy. Mm-hmm. But really, like you're not bringing your grandma to a movie until the pandemic's over. It's pandemic <laughs> versus economy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. like people aren't going to be using businesses in the same way until it's safe to do so not until they're allowed to do so there'll mm-hmm. always be people who will do whatever they're allowed and then get sick and pay the price but mm-hmm. i think uh at this point we're just there's a lot of things that are just prolonging this shared oh, collective sure. trauma that yeah. we've all gone through it's been Sucks. a yeah like like wishy-washy yeah. rules made i don't think by people who understand healthcare or society or society to be honest (laughs) my dad uh, had surgery this week he um had some diverticulitis and had to get a sigmoid snipped out um pretty emergently so anyway it's been a bit of a sketchy week but i would just like to let the audience know that um yesterday my dad farted that's big news bowels are moving and he he said he said i would describe the gas as a soft starburst of potential Laced, laced with confidence, yet little risk. Something you'd want to celebrate and share. So I just wanted to celebrate that and share it with the audience. That is how I would describe Balzac's coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that was a really great conversation, guys. Yeah. I think you mm. previously described it as fire. Fire, yeah. Well, thanks so much yeah. for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure. It was fun. I enjoyed this. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think just by looking back and seeing how many potential tangents each one aspect of this conversation mm-hmm. can go through, you realize the the multimodal sort of complexity of it all. But I think we were able to, to uncover a lot of elements that are um, that resonate with a lot of people and I think is relevant for uh, especially medical students 
because this mm -hmm. conversation and this the reality of the implications of the conversation will be super relevant for the rest of your life mm -hmm. you know Absolutely. and we, we really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to us and uh if you made it this far i'm, I'm amazed yeah and yeah as always if you want to if you have any questions comments concerns um email clerkshippodcast at gmail.com or just message Lu um, lewis steph uh andrew carter or i yeah. So, so like balls eggs. Balls eggs. Wait, no, no. Let's make a little jingle. Mm -hmm. oh, we should. We should. Okay. <laughs> balls eggs. Balls eggs. Balls eggs. It's the place to be. <laughs> balls eggs is great. Brought to you by balls eggs. <laughs> uh, please sponsor us. Please. Oh, oh man. Do we have any? Do we have any sponsors? No.